You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Design for resilience, flexibility, and scale, she said, as a takeaway for leaders in healthcare organization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligent Data Podcast. In this episode, you will hear Juliet Silver, Proficient's leader in healthcare, talk about the state of the affairs in healthcare. We touched up on several topics, including the AAA aim and its relevance, the pre and the post pandemic situation in healthcare, fire standards, the healthcare startup boom, and the impact of AI in healthcare. Hope you have some fantastic takeaways from our show. According to a recent report from the World Health Organization, about 40% of the patients globally are mistreated with medical errors. With access to more data and technology, healthcare leaders have an opportunity and a responsibility to transform patient and member safety with personalized care plans. Our guest in the podcast today is Juliet Silver, who will enlighten us with what she's seeing. Juliet, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Arvind. I appreciate you uh, inviting me. Absolutely. So by the way of that, can you introduce yourself and your role at Proficient? Yeah, happy to. So Juliet Silver, I'm the general manager and chief strategist for Proficient's healthcare industry vertical. And I uh, represent about one third of Perficient's overall business. So I lead and manage sort of the breadth of our healthcare portfolio, which includes payers, providers, and health solution organizations. And of course, we do a substantial amount of work across strategy, data and analytics solutions, digital health, and, and interoperability. So I've been with Proficient about seven years now. Uh, prior to my current role, I led the healthcare strategy team, which is sort of the management consulting arm of the healthcare vertical. And uh, prior to joining Proficient, I was an AVP for an academic medical center. I, I sort of work in a dual role, uh, Arvin. So in addition mm-hmm. to my responsibilities as a GM, I'm also a chief strategist. And in that role, it's really the scope of it is to be forward thinking, you know, tip of the spear in terms of digital transformation in healthcare, and and to bring those thoughts, insights and best practices to our clients infused in the work that we do with them every day. Not only do you manage the practice, but you're also in the field trying to figure out what healthcare strategy is all about on a daily basis, right? You've got it. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So from improving patient health with personalized care to reducing operational costs, data and analytics is becoming incredibly important for healthcare. Can you help paint that picture, especially being the healthcare chief strategist from an industry point of view? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question, Arvind. And I would say that, you know, the way that we view the patient is constantly evolving, right? So From a traditional data and analytics perspective, it was historically all about the data we could derive from the electronic health record, right? So the encounter data, the treatment demographic, patient history, all of that structured data that helps us build sort of a longitudinal record. And in the case of, you know, health plans, it was really more centered around health plan benefits, member claims, et cetera. 
I think more recently, we're seeing an increasing amount of, you know, patient insights being unlocked through unstructured data. And so getting a view of the patient that really comes from our ability to exploit the notes through interactions the patients had with their provider, for example, or other types of information that's, you know, stored on in documents. And so we're getting a more holistic view to, to support that sort of more traditional patient record. I think in, in the provider domain, we, we view the patient through through the lens of, of data, also, you know, through insights that help promote the triple aim. So what quality Uh, And outcomes did we deliver for that patient? You know, what gaps in care do we need to be considerate of when we're treating patients with high risk or or chronic diseases? So I think, you know, a lot of that legacy view of the patient was really centered around the EHR. And then I think it's been enriched, you know, more recently with things like social determinant data. So being able to capture a view and analyze information that helps us understand the economic and social conditions that may influence the health and status of of that patient. But I would say the scope of it, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think really keeps expanding as, as we think about patient and the data that surrounds them. And I think, as you pointed out in your introduction, one size does not fit all in healthcare anymore. And so we've, we're challenged to do more through personalized medicine. And that takes vast amounts of genomic data that we're capturing to to help us round out our view of of a patient and use that for things like clinical trials or or in personalized medicine. And then we're, we're enriching that with things like pedigree data. I also think this whole concept of personal health and, and personal health data and people wanting to share, for example, their their Fitbit data with their payer or health insurer, right, in some cases, because they're receiving incentives from that health plan, because they're being proactive about maintaining their health. And in some cases, you know, payers are offering things like premium reductions for that. And then I think we're also looking at the, the patient or the member as a consumer as well. And we're seeing a big shift from payers and providers because they're looking at the consumer in the same way as other industries do. So we're starting to paint that picture with data around the lifetime value of that consumer. And we're leveraging data, both internal and external, to market to to them, to, to reach out and engage with them and to be able to capture interactions and and preference data in CRMs, for example, or help to develop propensity models that enable us to target specific communication to those patients. So I would say sort of, you know, in, in a very rounded way, the way that we look at, at patients is evolving, how the data and analytics we, we use to build that patient 360 view is evolving as interactions occur across sort of an omni-channel landscape. And we're capturing more and more of that data over the course of those interactions. So long-winded answer, but but hope it sort of helps to paint a picture for you. Absolutely. No, it gave me a good context on both the payer side and the provider side, right? So now one question, you, you use the word patient a lot, right? Um, 
when I just Google the word patient, the answer to that is usually somebody who is expecting a care support from a hospital or from the member. It's it's no longer that the way you're explaining it, right? It's 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 about proactive health. It's about making sure that you reduce the readmission, so to speak, or even reduce admissions in the first place. So is patient even a relevant term going forward? Yeah, I mean I, I, I think we we should probably refer to them as health consumers, right? Because to your point, I mean it's very much a wellness focused preventative perspective these days and while we we diagnose and we treat patients in healthcare and provide care and obviously health insurance products to support them the extent that we can use data to influence preventative care and to promote wellness is is better for us in the long run when it comes to population health. Yeah, fair enough. I, I love the word health consumers. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be family health. Nowadays, it's about Pelotons and Fitbits, where they have this digital ecosystem of healthy things to do, whether it's appetite or exercise or all of the above. They have a community cohort of people that work out the same way. And do you think that influences, I mean, you mentioned the, the kind of triple aim, right? Part of it is to make patients or, uh, you know, health consumers healthy. Uh, on the payer and provider side, are they increasingly leveraging these kind of data sets uh, and an analytics from third parties like the Pelotons and Fitbits? Is that helping them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, sort of, I mentioned that earlier. I mean, I think health insurers are, focused on wellness, right? They want their members to be well. They want their members to be actively engaged in their health. And so they're consuming a lot of the data that's obviously originates through some of these devices from an IoT perspective and using that to prove out who, which, which of their members are, are being proactive. Or in the case of a physician treating a patient with a chronic disease, which ones are following you know the the, the regimen that the healthy regimen and exercise regimen that's commensurate with their care and in many cases today much like the auto industry has done in terms of those that are really good drivers that give them premium discounts we're seeing the same thing play out in the health insurance industry where that type of data is being leveraged to also inform health insurance discounts and and that type of thing yeah incentives Gotcha. All right, let's clear this white elephant in the room here. Um, what do you make of COVID and, and uh, you know, what, what do healthcare organizations, payers and provider alike do to handle it? Or are they able to handle it? Some do better than others. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, COVID, it's a global pandemic, right, that's changed everybody's lives. And certainly, I think, brought a lot of focus from the healthcare ecosystem around our ability to, to rapidly collect and report out case data to, to state and federal agencies and broader communities. And, and so we've seen organizations, and some have done this, to your point, better than others, right, who've been able to stand up and, and develop cluster models to help them to really pinpoint outbreaks of disease in specific geographies and, and then help leverage that data to, to be able to orchestrate and plan for resources, operationally analyze the impacts perhaps on supplies like DME or 
PPE and, and personnel and equipment and, and resources that need to be able to, to be mobilized to, to address specific hotspots. Not so much in this country, but abroad, I think we've seen contact tracing been leveraged a lot more, and, and that's electronic contact tracing. The US really didn't employ a lot of that, but other countries have in an attempt to control the spread of the disease. And I think COVID also has accelerated the need to enable the treatment of patients or health consumers at home, right? It's really promoted that health at home movement where telehealth is front and center, where remote testing or real-time monitoring has become a necessity. And so I think this ability to sort of stream data, to store and analyze and invoke actions as a result of near real-time data is becoming a requirement for most healthcare organizations. And, and obviously, some are just not positioned with the contemporary data and analytics architecture to support that. Absolutely. So you mentioned contact tracing, and more importantly, I think I completely agree that the digital adoption, especially you know capabilities like telehealth, has picked up pace pretty rapidly because it's no longer a luxury; it's almost like a mandate at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Th- does this, you know, does this also impact the physician side? As in, there, there's this uh, uh, a lot of data about physician burnout, right? It constantly comes up pre-COVID. Um, has this changed that landscape? Are phys- physicians getting burnt out more because now they have to be in front of a monitor all the time? Or are they able to schedule appropriately so that, you know, that that concept, the, the whole concept of uh, physicians getting burnt out and committing suicide eventually, has that been reduced, you think? Has that been tracked? It's an interesting perspective, right? So if you, if you look at physician order entry in a tr- traditional EMR environment where physicians are trying to maintain their utilization over a, over a given day or a given week, they're already under a lot of pressure to see a lot of patients. And then capitalizing on that, they, they then have to enter all of those interactions and the information into the patient notes, into the EMR. And so there's a lot of burden, I think, on physicians more generally with, you know, sort of computer-oriented sort of order entry. That places a burden on them already. I think telehealth has, in fact, freed up time for them that they're not flitting between rooms. They're able to do, male to have more time, focused time with their patients as a result of being able to interact digitally with them. So if anything, I think it, it's, it's probably eased to that burden some. Of course, those that are on the front line and, and who are working day to day with COVID patients I think what we've seen is a much more focused effort to monitor their health and well-being, to monitor the protocols that they're following to ensure that we reduce transmission and they're adhering to to obviously the protocols set forth to, to limit the spread. So that's added an additional burden for those on the front line for sure. Right. And there's data and analytics to prove that too, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I think more generally, I mean, that, that's sort of what we're seeing around COVID. Gotcha. You alluded to this, Juliet, the, the whole concept of vol- volume-based versus value-based, right? That industry as a whole is going towards this value-based care. Um, has capabilities like telehealth changed that to a volume-based? Or do you think, 
I mean, I can't, I can never put myself in a physician's shoes, but I would only assume that when I see a patient directly, it's a different experience than when I'm virtually seeing a patient, right? Correct. Does that change the concept of volume-based and value-based or it's still too early? We got to see how post-COVID is going to evolve. Yes, I mean, you know, value-based care is obviously driving towards the best outcomes with the highest quality at the lowest cost. So if you look at low acuity cases, I think telehealth is a really good solution for post-surgical follow-up, for example, or those sort of low acuity interactions that you would have with a provider. I don't think, however, though, it replaces everything. So I think it's it's one denominator, if you will, in a much broader picture of helping to lower cost and make care more accessible to even people in, in remote areas, for example. So I think it plays into the value-based equation, Arvind, but I don't think it's the be and end all of the value-based equation, for example. Gotcha. Gotcha. It absolutely does. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we've talked a lot about COVID and the evolution of how healthcare um, evolves post-COVID, right? Let's talk about startups. So, you know, in 2020, Digital Health uh, 150, startups have raised over 20 billion U.S. dollars. At least 75% of these startups have machine learning and AI tied to them. What do you see as the uh, adoption of AI in, in specifically in providers, maybe in payers too? Um, you know, how, how, does, how does the industry evolve? especially now with all the pandemic situation? Yeah, so we're seeing AI adopted in a variety of ways, as you can imagine, right? So first, I think when it first sort of emerged, it was really an assist in clinical decision-making. So examples of that might be to mine data in the medical record that has traditionally been in a unstructured format. So leveraging NLP to surface patient notes, for example. But then it evolved from there to sort of being used to monitor vitals and lab results and identifying either high-risk patients retroactively so that you could get them into the transitions in care and the care management cycle or in in near real time in some cases. And so we, we've seen AI used to curate and surface information from anything from large corpuses of curated data, for example, medical journals, which there's a huge amount that a provider needs to wade through in order to discern the best optimal treatment for their patients based upon the latest knowledge and science. You know, cancer treatment's a good example of that. So we've seen AI and ML used um, in order to surface that detail quickly. And then, of course, with COVID, we saw the release of the COVID chatbots, right? So the ability for you to interact and, and, and go through some sort of symptom checker that was fully AI enabled for you to basically discern and triage your next step. So I think a lot, we're seeing a lot in chatbots, you know, the ability for consumers to ask and receive responses to their health questions as triage agents. And then we're also seeing AI being deployed quite broadly in in call centers, either to analyze sentiment analysis during an interaction or to service responses to a question around my plan benefits or how much a procedure is going to cost based upon the location of, of the treatment. And a lot of places where it's used perhaps for repetitive operational activities, 
medical coding might be a good example, Arvind, of that, or in the claims analysis process to automate that, or maybe to automate the mailroom. So that's sort of where we saw it really get its start. And then more recently, I think it's being used to sort of predict behavior, to develop propensity models in marketing and targeting, you know, health consumers. In, in a couple of other places that uh, I've seen, and you tell me how much you're seeing this, is this this uh, aspect of deep learning, especially when you're looking at things like genomic sequences and, um, you know, you, you mentioned the propensity model, a lifetime value. The, these are not just machine learning. They're a lot more than that. They're very complicated and they have a lot of, you know, relationships and nodes that you have to tie together. Are you seeing more and more of deep learning being pervasive into the healthcare segments? I think we're early in that process. I think the speed at which deep learning can help us versus the speed at which we're coming up to speed to be able to employ it are running at two different two different speeds, right? So I think certainly we will see it be more pervasive in the future, but I think it's really only the leaders and early adopters where we're seeing that become more pervasive today. And obviously, FDA plays a key role here, right? I mean, it, it gives you more uh, legitimacy if it's an, a genuinely FDA-approved uh, deep learning algorithm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Gotcha. All right. So so let's jump into the IoT that you talked about, the Fitbits and the Pelotons of the world, right? Um, how, especially with the explosion of data, I can tell you myself, I've been way more fitter than my entire life since COVID hit because I've focused a lot more on my exercise regimens, right? Um, I'm assuming a lot of a lot of folks in the world are, are doing the same, especially when you're locked in the house. Well, this means basically more data. So what does what does that do to some of the IoT examples you talked about, especially when there's a lot of data? How do you govern that data? How do you focus on the quality of the data? Because this might be a, a literal life and death situation when you're using data. It really is. And it's coming in such a variety, right? Different forms, different, you know, volume and variety, right, is, is really key in the sort of data that we're having to manage today. There's there's a couple of things I would say about that, quite frankly. I think that the first is this explosion of data. We're generating it from digital devices and we're seeing all the usual problems that we would expect to see in matching patient data from a device with the correct device identifier to the patient record, where some of those unique identifiers or names are expressed differently in different systems. And these really culminate in the usual master data management problems, Arvin, that we sort of see every day, right, more commonly across the health system. I think then there's the issue of sort of the, the, the raw data collected from the device itself, right? Is it sufficiently capturing the discrete attributes that make it useful for solving the specific use case? And I'll give you a case in point. So I, I work with a medical device manufacturer to collect some data from an orthopedic bone sore, for example. And one of the things we were trying to do was to collect data that would enable us to be proactive about the maintenance and replacement of that device and do analysis around its performance. 
But what we found was in, in looking at the data is to solve for that specific use case, we, we had an inability to pass that data in, in, in a meaningful way. There were certain attributes that were missing. So we've got many aspects that can contribute, I think, to both data quality and governance, in, including things like just the completeness, correctness and appropriateness of, of the data, right? And how it's annotated or how it's labeled, consistently labeled, because, you know, then if you're using that data with an algorithm, an algorithm may treat it differently. So I think there's a myriad of issues that that need to be addressed around device-generated data and certainly a lot of governance that needs to be put around it uh, in order for us to fully exploit it. Yeah, machine learning and analytics go by only one principle and one principle only. Whatever data you train these machine learning algorithms with, that is what its world is all about. You will have these inherent biases, you will have these inherent data quality issues, but that's not anything wrong with the algorithm. That's wrong with the data you're feeding it, right? Correct, exactly. So yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot to learn here and, and unpack here. Maybe in one of our next episodes, we'll talk about how hopefully post-pandemic, we're, we're finding increasing ways of using this data because obviously more and more is get, getting generated as organizations are digitally transforming it. All right, um, HL7. So it, it's been in existence for decades now. I don't know when it was first found. Um, industry is talking about new interoperability mandates for fire standards, FHIR, right? Why why change? Why now? What's What's the benefit of this fire standard? What are you seeing? Yeah, so so for those of, of you listening who are not familiar with FIRE, it stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, and it's actually a standard that's being devised by HL7, so the Health Level 7 International Organization. But to answer your question, the benefits of FIRE essentially is to establish the future standard by which healthcare information can be enabled, how we can enable our healthcare providers and administrators to easily share patient information when they're using different software systems. So FHIR is really an interoperability specification that's formulated to exchange this data electronically. And really the purpose behind it is is to address this sort of booming digitization that you mentioned earlier, Arvind, right, that's occurring in the healthcare industry and be able to make patient records accessible, to make them understandable and available in a common format. And of course, you know, CMS and ONC, that the recent interoperability rule requires EMR vendors make an API-enabled access available to n number of, of applications that the patient may choose to use to be able to access that data. And, and similarly, payers are required to expose claims data and and patient medical record information in the same way. Is this a way for uh, healthcare organizations to say, hey, patient uh, or healthcare consumer, I would now be fully transparent with you on your medical record where you have the ability to go and read your own. Is it giving more transparency to the healthcare con- the health consumer? I think it's giving transparency. I think it's also giving portability. Right. So I think that's a big, a big issue is that historically you felt locked in to a given provider because they held all of your medical records. So it was difficult for you to go outside of network or switch provider or switch payer for that example, because all your history was tied up with a given entity. So I think it does two things. To your point, it makes it more accessible. 
I think it makes it more transparent. It also makes it more portable. So it's it's a very similar to a loyalty program, if you will, right? So while a health consumer may or may not be loyal to a particular hospital, depending on the kind of treatment they get and the kind of wellness that they focus on, um, this gives them the ability to either be loyal or not be, depending on the experience that they get with the, the provider, if you will, right? It provides much more consumer choice. I think you just hit it on the head, right? So in a consumer-driven society where the health consumer now is in the driving seat and making decisions about what's best for them and best for their family, where they can seek out the best care at the best cost. When we've got very high deductible health plans that people are being faced with, having to make those types of decisions. And I think making this information available to them, making it portable, enables them to make those decisions. Yeah. And a couple of questions to follow up there. Healthcare organizations are typically conservative, right? This is a big change to be transparent with their medical records or their definition of the medical records to the patient, the transparency and portability that you mentioned. How are they how are they handling it? I mean, are are they open for these changes or are they is this being forced uh by a it's mandated. <laughs> it's mandated. So whether they're open or closed, the interoperability rule is a requirement. So it's not like an EMR vendor has a choice anymore. And to be protective about the, the, the data about that patient that's in the EMR, they are required to be able to expose certain attributes of that patient record via an API today. So it's not a choice. It's a mandate. <laughs> right. And what does it do to topics such as data ethics, data privacy, and data security? Well, data ethics, I think, is a much bigger topic. If you think about whether that's a payer or whether it's a provider, or it's a health solution company, all of these organizations maintain and manage considerable information about the health consumer. And they can make informed choices about how they use that information. Generally, when you, you go to see a provider, you are you sign a consent form for how your data can be used, right? How it can be shared with your health insurer, for example, or how they can use that data for secondary intent. And so I think it's really down to the individual organization to discern ethically how are they going to use and take a position around how they're going to use, maintain and manage that data. And of course, you saw probably the Ascension news more recently where it was this partnership with Google and Google was managing and maintaining patient data on behalf of the health system and all of the HIPAA privacy considerations and concerns around that partnership because of the HIPAA privacy rules. So. I think we're moving into new territory, but we're still, we still have to adhere to the HIPAA privacy and security rule and everything that brings along with it. So I think that the, there's a distinction between security, compliance and governance as it relates to HIPAA. And then the decisions we make as an organization about how we are going to use within the confines of the law, of course, how we're going to use patient data and how we're going to share that patient data and the perspective that we take around that in terms of ethical use. 
Awesome. Well, you know what? I, I really wish that we have at least three to four hours of your time, but I know we all have our day jobs. Um, you know, th this is just you, you've unpacked so much for me. And, and again, I'm I'm hoping I can bring you on to another uh, show of ours and, and start talking about some of these topics that you've painted a picture for us. Um, Juliet, before we wrap up, a couple of questions for you. So number one, can you give me and this is the, the industry you're in literally saves people's lives. Can you maybe give me one to two examples of how Proficient is actually seeing the results of what they're trying to do that saves people's lives? Yeah, no, absolutely. So well, we did a project for a client, for example, where we helped to enable and surface high-risk patients for a health system so that they could proactively manage their care in the transition from the hospital to the home. So often these, these patients with chronic diseases, COPD or CHF, they need a lot of care and a lot of coaching as they transition out of the hospital setting. And so we use actually an AI-enabled solution that, that enabled their care team to identify these patients very quickly post-discharge and then be able to engage with those at most risk for readmission and prevent readmission and obviously all the consequences that go along with that. There's also things like hospital-acquired infection, right, and, and proactive monitoring around HAIs. Catheter infections are, are a good example. That can result in sepsis, and one in three hospital deaths are a result of sepsis. I don't know if you, you realize that. So early detection that's able to be driven by AI can really save patients' lives, and our ability to proactively measure those key variables ahead of the onset of illness enables us to do that. Another example might be, you know, the ability to, to monitor a patient in the home. So let's say that we, we send a patient home with a pacemaker and we have the ability now to remotely monitor ECG signals on a, on a pacemaker that's implanted in a patient and create some business logic that would trigger early warning signals of any problems or, or irregularities. So I mean, that's just a few examples of what we've been involved with, Arvin. Exciting times. Exciting times, Juliet. This is literally life-changing. Um, all right. So uh, the last question, uh, what advice do you give to our listeners, especially, you know, executives who are wanting to recover from the pandemic situation? And, you know, what, what, what would they be thinking about? What should they be thinking about? Well, resilience, I think, right now, and, and being able to design for resilience while at the same time build the flexibility and scale that enables them to iterate and incrementally address sort of a number of high value use cases that really rely on contemporary approaches and architecture. I think as we move into the sort of post-COVID world, if you will, people need access to data. And I think COVID's brought that to the fore that sometimes we need to mobilize very quickly and we need to give our resources self-service access to that data. And we need to be able to do that driven by a really good customer experience. So getting that right, along with our ability to govern the data and, and make sure the data is trusted is, is obviously a must. I think making sure that we've got a competency to support 
the people and the analysts in the field that use this critical data, that they know the platforms, that we train them on them. We help them understand data quality issues and the governance frameworks that we employ to enable them to unlock the value of that data and do that in a very governed way. And then I think, you know, more importantly, having the ability to help the business and, and clinical stakeholders understand the art of the possible and enable EIM programs that are really supported by effective data and analytics. COEs is, is really critical, right? Centers for Excellence. So those are, those are just some of the things that would be top of mind for me. No, very well said. And, you know, I, I always take this example, especially the post-pandemic situation. If I'm a consumer and you offer me two choices, choice A is a beautifully well-designed mobile application, but the data is not good. Choice B is a Microsoft Excel file with 100% accuracy of the data. Guess which I will pick? It's always about the data. So, it is. It is. You know, You're absolutely I, right. That's that's a, a good takeaway. Thank you so much, Juliet. Really uh, appreciate your time here. The, the future of healthcare is both exciting and, and, you know, we've talked about a number of opportunities for personalization. It, it is scary in some ways, but I hope as human beings, as a species, we consider health as an important topic of discussion going forward uh, and work with our providers, especially in the age of interoperability and telehealth um, and, and make most out of it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Arvind. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvind Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.